Jeremiah 28. I ask you to open your Bible. We're going to look at 27 and 28 as we work through this passage. There's an outline in your bulletin. Hopefully you picked one of those up on the way in. You can track along with the message this morning. These two chapters go together. I've mentioned that already, 27 and 28. Both of these chapters at the beginning, 27, 1 to 3, and 28, 1, date this particular story to the reign of Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah. And so we've talked in the book of Jeremiah. It is not strictly chronological from point A to point B. sort of hops around. And this particular story takes place during the reign of Zedekiah, the very last king of Judah. We talked about Zedekiah recently. I believe it was last week. He was a king from 597 to about 586 when the Babylonians fully and finally hauled the people into exile. His name was given to him by the Babylonians. It literally means righteous is the Lord or righteousness of the Lord. It's an ironic name because Zedekiah was not a righteous man by any standard and he did not have a heart for the Lord on any level. So he was not a righteous man. He did not love the Lord, but he's the last king of Judah. Some of the background is important to understanding what's taking place in chapter 27 and chapter 28. Four years before the events of this story, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army marched on the city of Jerusalem. They conquered the city. They took the sitting king, whose name was Jeconiah, off of the throne. They put this new king, what we would call a puppet king, on the throne, and they said, your name is now Zedekiah. It's interesting that the Babylonians named him righteous is the Lord, righteous is Yahweh, but that's what they named him. They put him on the throne, and they basically said, send the taxes when they're due and keep control of this city. If you don't walk the line, you'll have to deal with us. And then they left. Zedekiah was the king. And a year went by and things were fine and they sent their taxes. And another year went by and things were fine. And a third year. In the fourth year, King Zedekiah, this puppet king, heard that off in Babylon there was trouble. There was rumblings of revolt and rebellion and there were battles being fought on the frontiers. And Zedekiah had a thought enter his mind and the thought was, maybe it's time for us to throw this yoke, this burden of captivity and slavery and taxation. Maybe it's time to rebel against the king of Babylon. And he called what we would describe as a summit meeting. He called to all the nations surrounding Judah. You can read about this in chapter 27. He called Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. He called all of them to Jerusalem, all these kings that had been propped up and set up by Babylon, called them all together and they had a meeting. And at the meeting, the discussion was, what if we formed an alliance? And what if this might be the perfect time for us to rebel against the empire of Babylon, against Nebuchadnezzar. That meeting is taking place when Jeremiah enters the story. In Jeremiah 27.2, you can go back and look at this, the Lord gave Jeremiah instructions about a yoke and what we would call a sermon, a message, and he sent Jeremiah to interrupt Zedekiah's summit meeting. 
So when we talk about a yoke, this is what we're talking about. Something that you would use with cattle as you're working the field or as you're pulling a cart. The crossbar would set over the shoulders of your oxen. And the underneath straps, the U-shaped part, would be adjustable. And it would tighten or it would loosen to secure onto the animal. God says to Jeremiah, make one of these. Then put it on. So you can imagine Jeremiah wearing this yoke on one side And the other side is empty, and so he's probably carrying it, or maybe he's dragging it. We don't know. But he's got this yoke on, and he breaks in to the summit meeting. You can imagine how ridiculous he looks wearing this thing. In a a gathering of important kings, here comes a young, crazy prophet with a yoke on his neck. And he walks in. He has a warning. The warning to these kings is, do not rebel. There will be a consequence if you do. And he promises these kings in this summit meeting. He says, listen to me, Nebuchadnezzar is going to reign through all his lifetime. And then his son is going to sit on the throne. And then his grandson is going to sit on the throne. The reign of Babylon is not coming to an end anytime soon. This is all in 27. Do not rebel. The Babylonians aren't going anywhere. And Jeremiah, wearing this yoke, says, you essentially have two options. He just lays it out for him, and he says, you can do one of two things. Here's your options. Option one, submit to the king of Babylon. And you see the picture of Jeremiah wearing this yoke, and the other side is empty. He's inviting them to submit. Submit to the king of Babylon. God will let you stay in your land, and you'll keep your lives. That's option one. Submit to him. Call off this summit meeting, stay in the land, and you get to live. Your kids get to live. Or option two, you can bow up and you can rebel against the king of Babylon. He's going to haul all of you. He's taken a few, but he'll come back and get the rest of you. He'll haul you into exile, and you will die. Those are your two options. He sets them before the people in this room. And then he looks eye to eye at Zedekiah. And Jeremiah the prophet begs the king of Judah. He begs him, do not do this. If you rebel, you the leader of this nation, you will subject our people to exile, to death, to plunder. It will be horrific. He begs him not to do it. Then he looks at the people. He looks at the people of Judah and he says to them, please do not join in this rebellion. He asks Zedekiah and he asks the people, why would you subject yourself to exile and death? Why would you put yourself in this precarious situation of suffering and distress? Why would you do it? Just submit and stay in the land and live. That brings us to chapter 28 and it brings us to the big idea of chapter 28, which is our passage. Here it is. The truth of God's word has always been and will always be opposed by false teachers. The very moment that Jeremiah is done pleading with Zedekiah and pleading with the people, he says, please do not rebel. He's begging them. As soon as he's done, in walks another prophet. And the second prophet is the prophet we read about in Jeremiah 28. His name is Hananiah. And essentially, he says the exact opposite of what Jeremiah says. He opposes him every step of the way. Listen to me. This is not unique 
in the book of Jeremiah. We've seen this already. It's not the first time he's faced opposition. In chapter 11 and chapter 12, he's opposed by his own kinsmen, the men of Anathoth, who try to put him to death. In chapter 18, it's the establishment. It's the wise men, it's the priests, and it's the prophets. It's the academy, the media, and the government all aligned against him. They oppose him. They call him a liar. They slander him. In chapter 20, Pesher imprisons Jeremiah. He throws him in solitary confinement. In the very next chapter, in Jeremiah 29, he'll face more opposition. This is no unusual thing for God's people. The word of God has always been and will always be opposed. And in our passage, Jeremiah 28, there's this showdown between Jeremiah and Hananiah. One of the commentators used a word I had never heard before. His name's Phil Riken. He's a previous pastor, a previous university president. He said, Jeremiah and Hananiah get into an argy-bargy. You ever heard that word, argy-bargy? He, he's talking about this argy-bargy, and he says, this is proper English. This is the Queen's English. This is the way they speak on the other side of the pond. The Brits and the Scots and the Englishmen, they talk about an argy-bargy. And I read it, and I thought, never heard that word. I'm going to fact-check him. And I called my friend, Phil Skelton. He's a pastor. He's from England. He used to live in Odessa. He moved off. I got him on the phone, and I said, Phil, have you ever heard of an argy-bargy? And he said, you're an idiot. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's not called an argy-bargy. It's called an argy-bargy. In fact, in the first service, we had somebody from England in the service, and when I said argy-bargy, they were looking at me going. (laughs) And then when I got to that part of the story, she relaxed and said, oh, okay, you know what you're talking about, an argy-bargy. I said, what in the world, Phil, is an argy-bargy? And he said, it's two people coming to fisticuffs. It's two people fighting. So you've learned a new vocabulary word today, right? The next time you're on a long road trip and you're five hours in and your kids or your grandkids are in the back seat, you can turn around and say, hey, knock that argy-bargy off. I've heard enough of that. Be done with that stuff. Or you can call it argy-bargy. I think it's like gif and jif. You pick however you want to say it. I don't know. But they're having a fight, right? It's a showdown. It is a remarkable chapter, Jeremiah 28, is these two men just go back and forth. Both of them claiming to speak for the Lord. That brings us to the first thing I want you to see as we walk through Jeremiah 28. Hananiah claimed to speak for the Lord. That's Lord in all caps. That's Yahweh, the God of Israel. When Hananiah, the false prophet, stood up to oppose Jeremiah, he did not say, hello, I'm Hananiah, and I'm a false prophet, And I'd like to give you an alternate perspective here. He stood up and he looked Zedekiah and all the kings and all the people in the eye and he says, let me tell you what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And what he says, according to Hananiah, is that this exile will last two more years. You remember, it had been four years, four years since Nebuchadnezzar took control of this city, switched the man that was sitting on the throne, put Zedekiah on the throne, took some of the stuff, not all, some of the stuff from the temple, some of the people, took them into exile. It's been four years, and Hananiah shows up and he says, let me tell you what the Lord God says. Two more years, 
And all those people and all that stuff comes back. That's a great message. That's what the people wanted to hear. The people didn't like being subject to the king of Babylon. He stood up. His message was positive. His message was patriotic. His message was hopeful. His message was inspiring. I mean, these were people who were pretty desperate at this moment in history. And Hananiah stands up and he gives them some good news. He says, it's only two more years. The problem is, he was wrong. He was lying. He was not speaking for the Lord. Jeremiah had already told the people 70 years of exile. 70 years. Seven decades. We're going to talk about that idea next week in Jeremiah 29. 70 years of exile. That was depressing. That was discouraging. That wasn't uplifting. That wasn't hope-filled. That was sort of pessimistic. It sort of made the people feel lousy about themselves and lousy about their nation. 70 years. Hananiah says it's been four years and it's only going to be two more. It's been a long time since I took an accounting class, but I think that's six. You got two men, both of them claiming to speak for the Lord. One says 70 and one says six. We've read the rest of the story. We know there's a false prophet in the room. Listen to me. False prophets do not show up with name badges that say, I'm a false prophet. False prophets are in churches. False teachers are in churches. And they stand up in front of people and they say, this is what God says. And then they tell you. And they say, this is what the Bible says. And then they tell you. Only they're wrong. You have to be discerning enough to be able to tell the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher, a a true prophet and a false prophet. Just because someone stands up and says, the Bible says, and then they fill in the blank, doesn't mean the Bible says that. I was somewhere just a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening to this man speak, and he kept saying, the Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and the Bible says this. And after about the fifth one, I just wanted to say, I don't think it says any of that stuff. I mean, I've read it, and I, for the life of me, can't figure out where you're pulling this stuff from. You can keep saying the Bible says it. That doesn't mean it says it. You can keep saying you speak for God. It doesn't mean you speak for God. Now, the flip is also true. I could stand up and I could say, that person's a false teacher, that person's a false teacher, that person's a false teacher. Just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. My words aren't magical. If I'm calling someone a false teacher, if I'm claiming to speak for God, you can say those things all you want. It doesn't necessarily make them true. Both of these men stood up and claimed to speak for the Lord. False prophets will do that. They will claim to speak for the Lord. And in this instance, Hananiah says there's only two more years and the exile's over. So Jeremiah responds, and his response is a bit surprising. You might expect the argy-bargy to really get heated up. And instead, did you notice what Jeremiah says in verse 6? He says, amen. Amen. Essentially, what Jeremiah is saying is, look, I hope you're right, Hananiah. I hope it's only two more years. Jeremiah was sent to tell the people some really tough stuff, really hard things to confront them in their sin. He didn't relish that job. He didn't laugh 
at the people when he prophesied destruction. He didn't take joy or glee or happiness in being a weeping prophet. When he spoke about the judgment of God and when we speak about the judgment of God, it ought to cause us to weep. It ought to break our hearts. And so Hananiah says, two more years, Jeremiah says, man, I hope you're right. But look at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, yet, but, I hope you're right. But, you know, prophets have been talking about destruction for a long time. And here you are talking about peace. And what Jeremiah ends up doing is pulling from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is filled with tests, multiple tests about how you know if a person is really speaking for the Lord or not. One of those tests is, do they claim to speak for the Lord, Yahweh the God of Israel, or do they claim to speak for another God? That's a pretty easy test, right? I mean, if Hananiah walks in and says, this is what Baal says, well, you run him out of town and you don't listen to him. That's an easy test. Both of these guys say they're speaking for the Lord, and so Jeremiah appeals to another test, and the other test is, why don't we just wait and see what happens? I mean, you said it's two more years. I'm counting down from 70 years, so we've got about 66 years to go. Let's just see what happens in two years. And he basically tells the people, well, let's wait and see. Let's just wait and see what happens. He hopes that he's right, and his encouragement is, let's wait and see what happens. Hananiah responds, and he breaks the yoke from Jeremiah's neck. He responded by breaking his yoke. He reaffirms the prophecy that the exile would end in two years. This is where the argy-bargy really gets heated. If Jeremiah's wearing this yoke and he's got the bottom loop tightened on his neck, that thing doesn't just come off easy. So there's not a lot of detail here, but you can imagine in the midst of this summit meeting, there's two prophets having a wrestling match. One of them's trying to hang on to this yoke. The other's trying to rip the yoke off of his neck. He gets it off, and somehow he smashes the thing, and he breaks it. And when I read that, I just feel bad for Jeremiah. Every time God tells him to buy something or build something, it ends up broken. Look at this list. Earlier in the book, he says, Jeremiah, go buy a loincloth, brand new. He buys it, and then God says, bury it in the bank of the river and let it rot. Because that's what my people are like when they chase idols, a rotten loincloth. He sent him, we talked about this recently, to buy a bakbuk, right? It's a pitcher made at the potter's house, a, a pitcher made of clay, and it's got the skinny neck and a wide bottom and possibly a handle on the side. He says, go buy a brand new bakbuk. And then he sends him to the potsherd gate and he tells him to smash it on the ground because that's what God's about to do to his people. He's about to destroy them. In the weeks ahead, Jeremiah is gonna be having a conversation with the Lord. The armies of Babylon will be literally camped outside the walls of Jerusalem and the Lord will tell Jeremiah, hey, go buy a, a brand new house. And Jeremiah's going to say, I don't think we're going to be here very long. And God's going to say, I know, I know. Go buy a house. And God has a purpose in it. And he loses the house. He loses the property. He loses the field. In this passage, it's the yoke. He puts all the work into building this yoke. He wears it around for some length of time only to get it ripped off his neck and destroyed. It's a picture. Hananiah says it's a picture 
that the exile will end in two years. So what does Jeremiah do? Jeremiah walked away from the confrontation, and later he was sent to confront Hananiah about his lies. He just walks away. Jeremiah 28, verse 11, Jeremiah the prophet went his way. There's a proverb that says you should correct a fool in his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. There's a proverb directly beside it that says do not correct a fool in his folly lest you become like him yourself. And it takes wisdom to know when to do which one. So he pipes up and he corrects Hananiah and he says, Hananiah, you haven't been sent from the Lord. But then when the yoke is broken, he says, that's it, I'm walking away. And he just leaves. And sometime later, the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, I want you to go talk to Hananiah. And the message for Hananiah is very simple. The Lord did not send you and you're a dead man walking. You think two years and the exile is going to end? Hananiah, you're not even going to make it one year and you're going to die. That's where the story ends. Several months later, Hananiah dies. It's a shocking end to this back and forth, this argy-bargy between two prophets. In the end, one of them dies. And for what it's worth, Zedekiah also comes to a miserable end, the king who was on the throne during all of this nonsense. A couple of years later, he stays on the throne for a while, but a couple of years later, Babylon marches against his city. They breach the walls of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple completely. They take all of the furnishings into exile. They take most of the people into exile. They take uh, King Zedekiah. They watch him. They make him watch his sons be executed, and then they pluck his eyes out so that the last thing he sees is the death of his sons. It's a horrible end, both for Hananiah and for Zedekiah. And we keep reading this kind of stuff in Jeremiah. We read these stories and we say, these are not happy ending kind of stories. What in the world do we do with these tragedies in the book of Jeremiah? I want to suggest to you three things, three thoughts by way of application. Number one, you and I have got to recognize that the Lord is absolutely sovereign over history and humans. He is in complete control over everything that happens in history. It literally is his story, and he is completely sovereign over the lives of individual humans. This is what we're reading in this passage. is Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. I mean, from a human standpoint, nobody's more powerful than a king. And the author of Proverbs says, nobody on earth may be more powerful than a king, but God's more powerful than a king. So much, though, that his heart is just like the Lord directing a stream of water. It's not difficult for him. It's easy for him. He's completely sovereign over all sovereigns. That's what we call kings sometimes, sovereigns with a little s. God is big S, sovereign. He rules over history and he rules over humans. His sovereignty has no limits. Look how he talks about King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 27. Go back. Look at chapter 27, verse 6. It says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. 
That's an interesting way to talk about the most powerful man on planet earth. From a human standpoint, he's top dog. From God's standpoint, oh, he's just another servant. He just does what I tell him to do. He's just a slave, and he does whatever I need accomplished. That plays out in the book of Daniel, by the way. Daniel wasn't like Jeremiah. He went into exile early. He knew King Nebuchadnezzar. He interacted with him. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn that God was completely sovereign. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally learned it when the Lord sent him out to the field to live with and as a cow for a season of time. And he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of that period of humbling, Nebuchadnezzar came back and said, now I know that the Most High can do whatever he wants to do. He learned that lesson eventually. It's not just a Daniel, Jeremiah, and Nebuchadnezzar thing. There's another prophet in the Old Testament named Isaiah. Isaiah lived before Jeremiah, and he prophesied. He looked past Jeremiah, Isaiah looked past Nebuchadnezzar, and he looked to a Persian king named Cyrus, centuries into the future. He named Cyrus by name, and in Isaiah 44 and 45, Isaiah says, Cyrus, that great king of Persia who will come in the future, he is my servant. He just does whatever I want him to do. He's like a slave. He accomplishes my purpose. God's sovereignty extends throughout all human history and over all human beings. Now, we can argue about that as a doctrinal point, and we could make it a point of sort of discussion and debate, but it's really good news for you and I that God is sovereign over history and over human beings. It's really good news because his sovereignty extends all the way to the cross. Look what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He's talking about Jesus and his death on the cross, and he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. The early church prays something very similar just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 4. God's sovereignty extended all the way to the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Over all of the people involved in the crucifixion, God's sovereignty was over all of it. His control was over all of it. It's why God can make promises to save his people throughout the Old Testament and then actually see them through. It's because his sovereignty extends with no limits and no boundaries. And it's good news for you and I that God doesn't just use his sovereignty to wipe us off the face of the earth. He could do that in his sovereignty. But he's gracious and he's kind and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And in the fullness of time, he sovereignly sent his son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And he sovereignly raised him from the dead to new life. And he has promised one day to send him back as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You could literally say as the sovereign of all sovereigns. This is good news. This is the foundation, not just for a promise of judgment, but for the promise of the gospel. It's that God in his sovereignty has acted to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the first takeaway. Here's the second takeaway from Jeremiah 28. We must never teach or promote anything contrary to the inerrant word of God. Never. Don't teach anything that goes against God's word. Don't promote anything that goes against God's word. Be very careful when you say something comes from God and from his word and make sure that it does and that you're not just pulling straws in the dark. 
do not teach or promote anything contrary to the inerrant word of God. We talked about this recently on Wednesday nights. We talked about the inspiration of the Bible. We talked about the inerrancy of the Bible, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Right? We live in an era of redemptive history where we're not looking to individual prophets to speak on God's behalf, but we have the written, revealed Word of God that is the ultimate standard of what is true and right and good. You understand that people will come who say, well, this is what God really says. This is what is really true. And they won't call themselves false teachers, but they will contradict this book. So I could give you dozens of examples. Let me just mention a couple that you should be mindful of. Our origins. There are people in the world who have a story to tell you about where we came from. They have a claim to what is true. They call it scientific. But the Bible says that God created human beings as a direct act of creation. That he created human beings in his image. The Bible says that that is our origin story. In any naturalistic origin story that discounts God is a lie. It doesn't matter what they call it. It doesn't matter if they call it scientific. It doesn't matter if they call it true. It doesn't matter if they say they can prove it to you. They can't, and it's a lie. What about human nature? There are plenty of people out there today who want you to believe that human nature is basically good. And if we could just deal with some economic problems and some education problems and some oppression problems, then we would unlock all this latent goodness within human beings. We just do these things, then all this goodness that's within us will well up. Well, what does the Word of God say to that? Jeremiah says the only thing in you, in your heart, is wickedness and deceit. It's worse than you could ever imagine, Jeremiah says. The Bible says there is no one good. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Anybody who wants to talk to you about the inherent goodness of human beings is saying something that doesn't line up with the Scripture. What about gender and sexuality and marriage? The Bible has a story about all that. In the beginning, God created male and female as a binary. That's it. He designed marriage to be one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship, and he called it very good. And the world is going to keep doing this every June. They're going to say, we have a better story. We have a different story. You should believe that this is true. You should celebrate this is true. And you got to make the decision, which story am I going to believe? Some of these stories you hear may be very convincing. You may find yourself being the only one clinging to this old, old story, but you've got to make the decision. Am I going to teach or am I going to promote or am I going to accept something that contradicts the Word of God? Eternity. I don't care how many pastors, preachers, funeral directors stand up and talk people into heaven, preach people into heaven. The Bible's pretty clear about how you get into heaven. You're all sinners. I'm a sinner. The only way that we can have any hope for eternity is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's to believe in him. It comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we have hope for eternity. And the world basically says, as long as you're not Adolf Hitler, you get to go to heaven. Like, don't hurt children and don't kick puppies and you're probably going to go. And the Bible says, well, that's not, that's not how it works. You've got to make a decision. Which story am I going to believe? 
So negatively, we say this. Don't teach or promote anything contrary to the word of God. Positively, we stand on the Bible and we follow Jesus even when the world thinks that we're fools. Not if the world thinks we're fools. When the world thinks we're fools. You stand on the word of God and you follow Jesus. You understand that in Jeremiah 27 and 28, you've got these two prophets. In Jerusalem, one of them was very, very popular. One of them, people flocked to hear. One of them, people amened and applauded, and it was not Jeremiah. They loved Hananiah. They were devastated when he died. He was the kind of guy that said things that they wanted to hear. He was encouraging and uplifting and hopeful, and he promised all this great stuff was going to come about. In the end, he was a liar. The text says that he came from Gibeon. The Gibeonites enter the Bible story as liars. They lied to Joshua and the people to find their way into Israel. And Hananiah lives up to his namesake. He's a liar. But they loved him. And they hated Jeremiah. They thought he was foolish. They wanted to know, why are you so negative all the time? Why are you such a downer? Why do you have to be so pessimistic? Why do you have to be so confrontational? Why do you have to go around and and tell our favorite preacher and teacher that He's a liar and that God's going to kill him inside of a year. Why do you have to be that way? They thought Jeremiah was a fool. He was a complete social and religious pariah. They loved Hananiah. They loved him. You got to make the decision now how you're going to live as a Christian. Are you going to tolerate things that contradict the word of God or are you going to take your stand on scripture and follow Jesus even when people think you're foolish for doing it? You've got to make that decision now. You cannot wait till the next Hananiah comes along and he'll come. If you get on the internet today, he'll find you. He'll come right along and he'll claim to speak for God and it will be so encouraging and uplifting and positive. It will be a great message. It will tickle your ears. And at that point, it's too late. You gotta make that decision now. Well, I tolerate things that go against the scriptures, what God has said in the Bible. Will I take my stand on God's word Well, I follow Jesus even when the world thinks it's foolish and it makes me a social and a religious pariah, an enemy of the world. That's the call, is to do that, is to trust God's word, to stand on God's word and to follow Jesus like the hymn says, no turning back, no turning back. And as you follow Jesus, you trust that God's in complete control. You rest in his sovereignty. And you know that you may end up like Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. Maybe suffering, there may be hardship, maybe isolation, maybe loneliness. But you trust in the sovereignty of God and you know that one day the sovereign of all sovereigns will come back. He'll come back for his people and he'll set all the wrongs right. And that's your hope. It's not the approval and the applause of men or culture or society today but it's a far greater prize, eternity with the King of Kings.